Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. Right, so it's recording. I'll put it closer to you than me. Quite, I, I can be quite loud. Tell me if I need to be loud or I can be loud. When I was pulling up here, I got here bang on seven and I said, sorry, I'm late, which is ridiculous because I actually was on time. Um, I made you feel late by being here. I'm um, always early. I even sometimes try and be late, particularly if it's some kind of meeting or engagement where I feel like I need to be cooler than the yeah, other person yeah, or I need too. to impress. Or sometimes just to see if I can. So sometimes I deliberate. I did it to actually, what, who am I kidding? I did it tonight even. You know, I, I kind of run off another mix of a song. I voted on the way. Yeah. So there were deliberate strategies to not be ridiculously early. And sometimes I don't reveal to people how early I am as well. So how, so, how so sometimes, early are you normally? Well, sometimes like I'll be in a pub across the road for a meeting and reading a paper or something and then deliberately rock up five minutes late and go, oh, sorry. But actually the truth is I was in the pub for three quarters now across the road oh, wow. just trying to pretend to be late. And I think I've never heard of it discussed as a phobia and I think we are prone to use that word too much. Yeah. I think we talk about allergies and phobias when they're not. But I do think it's, it can occasionally be problematic. And I think like in, in a situation like a flight, that causes me undue stress. How early do you, because when I'm going for a plane, I like to be at least an hour and a half early at the actual airport, at least. You're a lightweight. Uh, well, you know, I, I might be, I might <laughs> well, be. Well, you know, People like, think well, I'm you know like before we did this, you gave me an agreement about things I don't want to talk about. Yeah. I don't want to talk about how early I go to airports. All right, fair enough. it makes me appear slightly <laughs> simple. <laughs> But it's, it's problematic. But I think it's true though, because like, if you are late for that airplane, then that really fucks everything up. So like, if I, if I find if I get there early, then I can relax. Like I want to get to the place and then then I, I can relax. Until no, I get to the place, I, I'm anxious. I, when do I relax? I, I, I relax when I'm in the seat of the plane <laughs> and I fasten my belt, then I feel like I'm actually gonna go. Oh, okay. I mean, Checking in or through security doesn't relieve any anxiety. <laughs> I have to be on the plane. Ironically, I have achieved missing a plane. <laughs> despite that. Yeah. And actually, this and this is the thing as well that when you actually consider the worst that can happen by being late, it's not that bad at all. You know, so back in my days with the band or whatever we missed some flights and once you've missed the flight well, you just laugh yeah. and you get your credit card out yeah, it's yeah, actually yeah. not so bad <laughs> but I mean uh, yeah no absolutely but I mean I've, I've started I, what, what happened today is quite standard like when I'm running late I end up being on time like that's the latest I ever get I'm hardly ever late but when I'm late it really well, drives me mad you know, it's definitely and, yeah. it's definitely it's definitely a more admirable attribute than being consistently late. Oh, I hate lateness. I mean, that's the thing. I don't want to be in the situation where I put myself that's in another, that situation. That's another problem with it, in that you sort of, you start to be unduly harsh on people that are even slightly tardy, which yeah. is really fair. I'm trying to learn not to do that. Because there are some thing. people who are, I don't know, just five or ten minutes late. No one should really care about five for ten minutes. No, no, five absolutely. ten minutes late is fine. But if I'm three quarters an hour early, then they're almost an hour late. Yeah. And so I have to remind myself that it's I'm the tosser, not them. <laughs> no, I, I have a similar thing. And in fact, I mean, today I was more nervous than normal about being late because you're someone I admire quite. And I get that out of the way now. I admire quite a lot. Um. No, I think I can be quite quite early for people I don't even like very much. I don't think that's really got anything to do with it. Well, no, but I mean, for me today, <laughs> I was very nervous about being late because... I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today, we're getting better acquainted with Darren Heyman. Hello, Darren. H Hello, Dave. The first question that I ask people standardly on the show is, how do you know me? Which I'm interested to hear what you're saying. You sent me an email? Ah. Um, I suppose it's kind of... You, you send an email to an account, which is 
almost as old as the internet. <laughs> the account was perhaps 96, 95. And it's quite hard to even get read in that account just because the amount of spam is almost impossible. Oh god, I bet. Because it's just the account's been there so long. And it's a, a sort of just a list on those things to do. But getting acquainted didn't seem like it would be from a Nigerian. What are they? The Nigerian princes, aren't they? Well, I, I don't think. I, yeah, I don't. Well, they're, they're not, not actually princes. Yeah, they're not yeah. from Nigeria, but. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. That, that's interesting because I know you, like your music, your work. I don't know you personally. And I first came across your music when I was at university, which was. I, I was. That's late to the party. I right. think my girlfriend was a big fan of yours when so, she was so when she was a teenager. How old are you? I am thirty now. So I was so, at, so, so so two thousand. I went to university. So you saw Hefner? No, Jen, my girlfriend, saw was a big fan of Hefner when she was right. a teenager. When she came to university, like you were, right. you were like the your music was the the kind of courting music. You know when you're exchanging what you love with each other musically, and I got into you and and got to the point with, where I, you're like one of those annoying things for her, like I, I got so into you that I bought all of your albums, all of ah, Hefner's albums, because right. she didn't have all of your albums, and so I became an expert on Hefner when she'd been the one who got me into Hefner, so it was became annoying. Kind of, that's the difference between men and women, men. They <laughs> just have an inbuilt autism when it comes to things like that, where they sort of just dive in and... If you like the Beatles, then within two months you own Wings at the Speed of Sound. Right? Yeah. Well, that's true in a way, but then at the same time, you know, your your music did really touch me in a way that not very many people have. Like, I would probably put you in, like, the ten musical, biggest musical influences on me as a, a musician. Or Well, I mean, thank you. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm, not, I'm well, getting it out of the way, I'm well, not trying to it's, butter it's, your well, bread. It's, it's, it's what you try and do. That's the reaction you try and do. You know, I feel that way about certain artists. And, and, and when you're writing and making music, that's what you want to be. You want to be extremely special to an individual. Yeah. And, and you want... I don't necessarily want a lot of people to like me, but I want the people to like me for it to mean something substantial. However, wanting it and wishing it to happen has never prepared me for when people say it to me. Oh, so God, I always yeah. have to just be slightly uh, no, I mean, abashed. I don't have the level of appreciation that you get, but every time somebody says they like my work, I also find it awkward. My, my instinct is just to put it down, you know, to, to, to put my own work down. To go, oh, you know, it doesn't happen enough to me to be bored of it. Okay. I'm never bored of it. I'm not bored of it. I mean, I should imagine if you're... Um, I don't know anybody remotely famous. Yeah. I should imagine if you Sting, but even not even Sting. I don't know. Let me think of someone. I don't know. Lana Del Rey or something. Mm. I'm sure she is already slightly jaded with people telling her how much music. It doesn't happen that much to me that I get bored of it. So it's always nice. No, I like it, but, but it still um, makes me feel uncomfortable. I think. I don't, um, I don't know. In the moment, it does, but. It's good. It's yeah, good. It's yeah, people much. saying nice things to each other is good. No, I agree. <laughs> uh, and, and in fact, weirdly, we have met in public, like in oh, face okay. to face once. That's kind of why I felt like you were in the uh, realm where, of this where, podcast. Where did we, meet? we met at the was it Club One Hundred on Tottenham Court Road? And briefly, you you were playing a gig there. You played like a lot of Hefner songs at that. Or oh, did I play completely Hefner songs? You might have done actually. The secondary modern were playing. Oh, I don't. Me and my friend came up to you afterwards. And I don't know. I've played there. Yeah, yeah. Two or three I don't times. expect you. I don't expect you to remember. It's a nice place to play. But when I met you, well, my friend asked you to sign a CD. This is the the stereo morphonium, and he asked you to write to. Is this for my girlfriend Jen? Jenny, I really like you. No. I really like uh, to Jenny. I really like your poetry, Darren. Yeah. Now you'd never read her poetry. I don't know why he asked you to write that. But what happened then is I went home and left the CD lying around. Jen got home when I wasn't there and she had this experience of, reading, of seeing the CD and thinking that her childhood musical icon had read her poetry and liked it. And then when I came home, I was like, uh... 
actually he hasn't read your poetry I've yet. Actually, kind of I've actually stopped doing this. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I, because it, this sort of thing happens quite often where. <laughs> All right, Dan, can you sign this? Can you put Roger is a dick splash and he doesn't clean the plates? Exactly, like some sort exactly. of like private joke. And I I sort of stopped doing that because yeah. I just thought, what am I part of and what am I doing? Yeah. And, and, and I don't, I'm, not, I, I'm like uh, Rosa Stance and Gildenstein are dead, a bit part actor in someone else's story. Yeah, exactly. If I don't know the beginning and the end of the story. You don't know what you're signing up What to. am I doing yeah. in the story? Am I making the you know, am I, am I the villain or what? Yeah. You know, so 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 I have kind of just tended to go for best wishes. No, no, fair <laughs> enough. And I, I, like like I've, I've my friend has been berated by both me and my girlfriend about about uh, her doing John, this. John Morrison, the uh, the bass player in Hefner. It's a very strange thing when you're first asked to sign things. Yeah, and and you're always asked to sign things. Um, before you think it's appropriate, you know, you're, there's always a let where you think, well, why would I? You want me to sign that? It yeah. seems weird. Why somebody would ask me? And so uh, he carried around a book, and uh, in the whole time of Hefner, he only gave out an autograph if somebody would sign his. Oh, that's a nice and idea. So, so I assume he's still got it, and it would be lovely to see it now. And he had it all the time when he went out to the merch store thing. And every time someone signed it, he would get their signature. So he had the autograph of everyone he gave an autograph to. It was a really nice idea. Yeah, that is a really nice yeah, idea. I, I, I assume he so still that, has it. So that's that covered out of the way, which is good. I'm stroking your, your beautiful dog, because yeah. we're meeting in the, in, the, in the pub and you've brought your dog along with you. So it's the first, I think, show that's had a dog along for the ride. We should, we should advertise the pub. Any dog-friendly pub in London should be advertised. It's the Rose and Crown on Post Street in Walthamstow. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, we'd have, I didn't know, you know, I didn't want to necessarily mention it unless you were comfortable with that. I put my return address on my mail order. Everyone knows where <laughs> I am. The second question that I ask everyone is, what do you do now? I make a living out of music. Just about. I'm always constantly thinking about what I'm going to do when I don't. It always seems like it's next year that I won't make a living from music. And then another year passes and it seems like I still am. I'm reasonably adaptable. So a lot of my day-to-day is the same as anybody else's listening to this. Phone calls, badgering people for money, invoicing, little bits of web design. It's does, to say I make my money at music shouldn't sound like I get up and play guitar all yeah, day because it's I, run, I run a a small cottage industry, I guess. I also have a, a wife who has a better, more reliable job than me, which makes things possible, which isn't to say I'm a scrounger. But somehow, I make a living out of music. That's what I do now. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's, a, that's an amazing, amazing thing to me, even though t- to you it's kind of... I, I recognise that it's, it's not, like, all fun and games, but I'd love to get to a point where I was able to just like make a living from doing stuff at the same time I know I'd be doing I look at the moment I do all of the hassle admin stuff all the time but I really would it, like it to is, be paid it, for it. No, it is great it is great and I and, it, and it's good for me to be reminded how, of how lucky I am because in any situation in life you always tend to look above you on the ladder rather yeah, than below yeah, you yeah. and, and I, I'm capable of feeling very jealous of a lot of my friends who do better than me and jealous of people I don't know, of course. Yeah. People whose just records do really well. So I am fortunate that I've got a creative job. And ultimately, tomorrow, I can get up when I want. Um, I won't. I'll get up about seven. Sometimes, though, it occurs to me that it isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all with a creative pursuit for it to be your, your income. Yeah. So I make enough money to live, but... If I didn't, is it necessarily worse? What I'm trying to say is that if I did another job three or four days a week and did music in the evening the weekend, I don't know if that isn't what I do now anyway. Yeah. You know, the other job being... Admin. Yeah. yeah. And when that was the case, the last time I, I did like, work a job, I don't remember being any less happy than I am now. What was the last job you had? The last time I had a job I depended on was just before Hefner, I suppose, and I worked for the Blood Transfusion Service, 
because I was like an auxiliary nurse. But I have had jobs even quite recently, and even now I teach on Mondays. So there is supplementary income. And I've worked in a shop, and I've worked for the Batsy Dogs Home, and I trained to become a teacher. So all those things have happened in the last 10 years. So I'm constantly thinking about taking other employment. Usually what I find is other jobs, like working in a shop, being a teacher, working back to the time, are much harder. Usually when I actually see what real work is like, yeah. that's when everything I've said in the past five minutes appears to be bollocks <laughs> and I go back to rats. No, I mean, I'm, I've recently, like the last couple of years, got really lucky. Now I work part-time doing a job that I actually like doing and that makes such a difference. I'm quite I think, comfortable I think, with that. I think in the past five years, I think it's probably something to do with the current economic climate. Lots of people are starting to value time. Yeah. Or maybe it's the age of everyone I know. But I find I hear more and more people making these part-time work, flexible hours. Have less money, but have more time. That's definitely the decision me and my partner have come to. Yeah. It, makes it sounds as clear as day and night when you say it, doesn't yeah. it? It seems so obvious. It does. But I can understand why it takes a while for people to get to that point, because it's a worry. Money's a worry. Well, the thing is, we're both like, Jen's a writer and I'm a, like a writer and musician and podcaster and all this stuff and it makes it enjoyable to be creative when I used to work 9.30 till 6.30 and have a, an hour commute on either side then when I was making work it was a desperate act it was like this has got to get me out of this have but, you ever read, have, you read, like have you read The Art of Hunger by Paul Oster um, I've heard well, of it well, but it's kind read. of it does what it says on the tin really it's, it's a sort of essay on the stereotype of the trope of the suffering artist yeah. and I guess it's a cliche the idea that the guy that works you know I don't know eight days a week and still works makes better art than the contented artist in the studio yeah. but I I sort of do believe in it I, I, be, I, I don't I begrudgingly believe in it but yeah. I sort of do and, 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 and I, I when things aren't going well and when I'm broke or when I have to do the jobs we said earlier that I don't like doing I remind myself of that because I do think that the art made by people on the way up is always seems to be more vital than the art they make once they're comfortable well that's true and I think it is a cliche yeah. but I still believe in it no, I know what you mean. I mean, that's, I certainly think the, the art people make on the way up. I mean, it's just having the time to make the art. Like, I like I think it. the art they make on the way down is also more interesting. I think the, 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 worst, the worst art is always the art when they're actually, everything's fine. I think art works best with limitation to a certain extent. It doesn't matter what kind of limitation, I think. Uh, almost always. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit about your music because I would talk to a, a friend who made music about their music, but I also want to get to other subjects about your life, if that's, if that's cool. Hefner, that was the biggest you hit, yeah, I guess? Yeah, probably the third album as well, probably not towards the end, but the, 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 the zenith commercially and critically would be Hefner. Was that Breaking God's Heart? Was that the third one? No, I think the album that sold the most, or, 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 or the, most, the album that most people know is We Love The City. Oh yeah, no that is a good album, it's a good, like, it has a very pop yeah. kind of feel to it, I can see why that would have gone that way. What was your biggest hit? Like, was it Sad Wit? No, it was um, Good Fruit. Oh, Good Fruit, yeah, yeah, of course. I think My favourite Hefner album is Dead Media, which I think you don't like that much, is that right? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's too great. I mean, it's alright, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not boring, it's, it's, it's... I mean, I love them all, don't get me wrong, but... I'm in awe of my arrogance when I think about that album, and I like that, and, and I like those albums by other people. You know, the, the missteps and the, the whims. I like artists that do that. And I think it's something that's missing in general in music. I think if you look at artists in the 60s and 70s, there's always these odd flights of fancy. You know, like, I don't know, soap opera by the Kinks or something springs. Because it was Dead Media's your synth album, isn't it, really? I mean, would you say? Well, I mean, that's, that's my regret about it, electronic. really. Not, not, that it, not, not that it's electronic, that I kind of slightly my gun was slightly half cocked and 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 even though it halved my audience I think it actually might have been better when, when we came to choose the songs in the album we pretty much had an album that was guitars and 
drums and what we were known for. And we kind of had an electronic album. So my regret about the album really is that we didn't, we, we sort of sat on the fence rather than jump over it. And so I think now with the sort of expanded two CD version, it's clear to see that we could have constructed a, a completely electronic album. So my regret is that, you know, if you're going to kill your career, I could have done it more, in a more sure-footed way. <laughs> So that's my regret about it really, that it's neither, it's neither one thing nor the other, it's not as singular as some of the other records. But I don't... That may be true, I like, I mean I like to listen to that album, but normally I listen to a, a song rather than the album all the way through, like I, I, I like to pick out certain... I think it has got a flow, I'm not saying it has. I think it has the best and worst song. Oh, it has the only Hefner song that I don't like. I tell me which one it is. Uh, Trouble Kid. Yeah, I, I hate that. And uh, I wrote it deliberately trying to be something as well. I wrote it trying to write a commercial song. It feels and like I wrote, that. I wrote it, you know, it's, it's quite, it had a forced gestation and it was me trying to. One of the few times I've tried to use loops, uses a drum loop and things like that. And it isn't me. Although, irritatingly, it still kind of worked in that, not that it was the most successful single idea, it wasn't, but it got selected, or nearly got selected for an advertising campaign for <laughs> Starburst or Opal Fruits. Really? I can imagine that actually. And it got down to the last two, and it didn't get chosen. And I'm quite glad it didn't get chosen because I suppose, yeah, I suppose commercially it was, or commercially for Hefner that album was a Nadir. But if the, the one kind of contrived and calculated attempt to be commercial had made me more money than anything else, I think it would have fucked up the rest of my life. Yeah. So I'm quite glad that that piece of shit didn't get the Opal Fruits commercial. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, the, the, thing I, cause the, the thing I didn't like about that song was the lyrics. And the lyrics are normally what I... Like, the thing that attracted me to Hefner... I mean, the music's great, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I, I love the music, but it's the lyrics that, um, that really blew it me just, away it just isn't very good yeah no but but that that song isn't but but what i mean i'm sort of trying to make a sort of segue into the what i love about your band and your your and your solo work as well is the lyrics but i i think i've heard you say that you're a music man you know there's people who are who like lyrics first and there's people who like music first like which are you you know i, I kind of ended up being a, a singer by accident really You'd form a band and you'd end up with um, four or five repressed men who wouldn't <laughs> want to go up to the mic. And the opposite of that, the guy that wants to be a singer, you know, the guy who wants to be a singer and doesn't want to play an instrument, well, everyone knows he's a prick. Right? No yeah. one wants him to be anywhere near him. Think of every singer who doesn't play an instrument. They're yeah. assholes, right? That, that was me originally, but I've but learned then you, then you learn and picked up. And as I've done that, I've become a better person. Um, so, <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, I just kind of became a singer, and it, it's, it still is a means to an end. I think what what fascinates me is um, what fas what fascinates me actually is um, arranging. I guess actually, I guess that's my favourite part of it. Not even writing, really is um, what magically happens when you add an instrument or take away an instrument. I think that's the thing that um, fascinates me and I never get bored of. But why if I put a set of chords down, if I add this or take away this, why sometimes when I take it away is it better or why is I add it and there's no logic to it and it's slightly magical and that puzzle is what I like doing. I do like words and um, and, and I'm interested in telling stories and I'm interested in narrative but it isn't the centre of what I do if and sometimes I feel like I've said it too much yeah. I said like music because it, it makes me sound like I, I take I, I think my, the, the, the impetus for me in lyric writing was that as soon as I started writing lyrics I was I never wanted to appear thick and it seemed to me that most people that, that write rock lyrics aren't very bright it seems like if you were if you were, had any talent with words at all, if you you were intelligent and, and dealt with words, the last thing you do would write lyrics for a rock band. 
they are inherently dumb and much stupider than most novels or something. Yeah. So when I started writing lyrics, I just that was that's what drove me really. I just kind of I, I still do four or five drafts because the last thing I want to appear is as an idiot. So I try <laughs> I try and work hard on the words. So is that do you, so is it the thing that drives you in that respect? Kind of yeah, is fear of looking looking stupid or? Um, I want to be clear. I don't like being misunderstood. I don't like being. Um, I don't like being uh, misunderstood like now or in any conversational situation. Yes. It also kind of shaped my vocal style in a way because when I was playing early on, you'd play in uh, venues of really shitty PA's and muddy sound, and that kind of quite high register of singing that I use on Heather. Because I often think that's because I'm trying to cut my voice through and be heard and be understood and I've never been the eye I've never really wanted to say about a lyric well it means what you want it to mean I think if like a, a, a meaning of a song is cons- misconstrued then I feel like I communicated it badly or I okay. wrote it down wrong I'm also driven by a desire to hear unlikely words in songs. You call a quite a few of your songs hymns, which was something I wanted to sort of like touch on. That's quite an unusual word in the world of rock and roll, I think. I haven't seen it, but maybe maybe yeah, it's something you're I'm referring to. I'm not so sure to. about that anymore. I don't really like that. Yeah, I did a, I did a whole series of songs in Hefner. Hymn to Cigarette. Which was just a... For the Fall of Cigarette. Which yeah, is my, like one a, of my favourites. It was like a writing brief. So I gave myself a writing brief that the hymns would be songs about things I'd like. Yeah. And so... The thing would be, I think, I don't know, there's telephones, the postal service. Things you didn't do, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it would be like setting yourself a writing challenge, as like your English teacher did at school. So I liked it in that degree, but I just find that actually those titles now strike me as a little pompous. <laughs> and, and it's a little bit um, self mythologizing yeah. so I don't actually like it in retrospect. No, I can understand why, actually, as think, an individual, you feel that. Words like hymn and, and uh, cod, uh, religious iconography, actually are quite rife in rock lyrics. I think lots of that, people use hallelujah and, and godlike kind there's of re- words. There's certainly yeah, religious yeah. references often. So, so um, but, yeah, I'm kind of driven to using words that you perhaps don't hear in popular song lyrics so that's another thing that drops well you, you definitely do that and that was one of the things I think where which blew me like you're one of the lyricists who I think and I know it's not true but I've had that experience of this person is singing things I feel do you know what I mean that and I'm sure you've had that I mean, with it's other a, people it's, it's about it's about a friend of mine said to me once it's not the quantity of the audience, Darren, it's the quality. And so that if you... I, 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 I have a lecture on this that I sometimes do when I'm asked to speak at colleges, and it's about... If you look at the popular songs at funerals, they're all about flying and wings. And so if you look at songs that have broad appeal, if you have like a song like Angels, for instance, yeah. wings and waterfalls and da 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 yeah. doesn't actually mean an awful lot but it means a, a little bit to a lot of people so there's a lot of people that think uh, that think Angels is about them and that's fine that's really good I'm really glad and it's a great song and I could write that type of song as good as that I could never write that sort of song but if you sort of write about the Rose and Crown on Hoe Street or the Wigan Gown on Holloway Road then you are going to cut that much deeper to yeah. a smaller amount of people. So, so to refer back to what my friend said, the quality of your audience is, is, is perhaps more loyal and stays with you. You, you, you. you are hopefully making a stronger grip on that individual, which is a terrible thing to say to you because it actually makes it sound very cynical and calculating. But I don't know. You uh, should... a, a, a brand of pen, a brand of nuts, the shape of a banister are, are, are the ways in which we can talk about heartbreak. Yeah. To talk about a heart being on fire doesn't tell you an awful lot about how someone really feels. But actually, the way they might be looking at a bit of flaked paint on a, a banister yeah. somehow does tell you a little more about how yeah. they feel. But then, I mean, what you do and what I think 
great great writers generally do is you you you, you have really excellent specifics but you also have the universals in there as well so like you do you write about love but like you say you write about love through the through the sort of filter of specifics this, I was talking about this with my friend Dave Tatsu who's a singer and songwriter in the Wave Pictures and we were having a conversation similar to this and he took it on board and he wrote this song I don't know what it's called I don't know what I, I, I kind of lose track of my friend's songs but he wrote this song and, and the girl is doing nothing She's just kind of standing there chewing and he's just describing things about what our hands are doing and nothing happens in the song but the result is the song sounds incredibly emotive even though he doesn't say anything about what she feels it's purely just an observational exercise on these little things which is interesting but the, yeah. the, the result of the song is it sounds incredibly emotional but actually he doesn't once say whether she's broken up from a boyfriend yeah. or whether she feels anxiety for this or whether she wants that he's just talking about her chewing and standing something. and that is the sort of thing I, I find with your songs that it just gets things right I mean but you you do you write kind of narratives they're not always about you are they I mean they're not always personal because you write about astronauts like my, one of my favourite songs is Alan Bean no, about Alan Bean you know, they're not always about <laughs> me but you always have to I suppose you always have to tap into something so um Actually, in some ways, the song Alan Bean is quite personal, actually, mm. because he's talking about a change of career, and he's talking about not wanting to be an astronaut, and he was talking about wanting to be a painter, which, for those that don't know, that's what Alan Bean, the fourth man on the moon, did. Yeah. He stopped being an astronaut and became an artist. And at the time, it would be a time when I knew that I was going to break up Hefner, and I was thinking about what I was going to do, so I can still sort of tap into something quite personal in that song. Well, yeah, I mean, and, that's, and, and as an audience member, that song about an astronaut that's had an experience yeah. that none of us have ever had taps into something very personal for me as well. That's one of my favourites, actually. That's one of my favourites of the songs I wrote in Hefner. That was the, that was the Hefner song that I got my best friend to like your band yeah. with, you know? Like, he, he never got it before, and then I played him that, and it just, I that think was it's, the I key. Think it, I think it's okay, that one. <laughs> so before I move off the music side of things, um, the question I always kind of ask musicians, because I, I, I think it's an interesting question, is if do we, like which of these is the is the worst song? A song with brilliant music but terrible lyrics, or brilliant lyrics but mediocre music? The former, brilliant music and terrible lyrics. I think that music does something. What chords do and what notes do do something inexplicable. To you. the fact that it can lift you or make you cry, and it's to do with the notes, and it's not to do with what those words would do written down. The most tired cliches can still be made good by the right chord sequence. It's, it's entirely possible that I might go home tonight and write a song where the only lyrics in the song are I love you, which are the most tired three words ever. But it is entirely possible that I could find the music that would move me. God, I think, so, so I think the Dandy Warhols did that. I think I think there was one song well, that said "I love um, you" a hell of a lot of times. I can't remember if there's any other lyrics, but I think they did. Dennis that. Wilson on the Ocean Pacific Blues seems to say "I love you" whenever he seems to run out of words, and it's, <laughs> it works quite well. Yeah. So um, yeah, I'd always. And actual fact, I do like loads of records with fucking terrible lyrics. And it doesn't bother me at all because the music's so great. Lots of lots of the greats have a terrible lyricists. Yeah, no, I know that's quite true. Although the, I think it depends. Quite a lot of the Beatles. What shit lyrics? Yeah, the Rolling Stones are fucking terrible. But then lyricists. they have good lyrics occasionally. Both of those the bands have good occasionally. Have some pretty fucking terrible lyrics. Oh, the, well, there you go. I'm not someone who can deal with bad lyrics. The Beach Boys, I, I know that they're good. I recognise that they're good, but I, I really find it hard to get into them because their lyrics say nothing to me about Beatles my life, as Morrissey would say. really good lyrics, but they have some rubbish ones too. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. I hate all that kind of goon, shoot, goon show fucking nonsense crap. Like, I don't know, Glass Onion and Lucy, the Skydumps. Yeah. Sort of so if they've got really bad lyrics, though, that is, is that a barrier? If it's no, no, I really like Glass Onion, I really like Lucy <laughs> and Sky Diamond, okay. I'm just making the point yeah, that yeah. they have bad lyrics, but I still like the songs. See, there you go. That's an interesting difference, I think. I can like songs that have got lyrics that other people say are crap, but I think are brilliant. Do you know what I mean? There are there are songs, I think, that have really no, I like, bad uh, lyrics. I like, I, like, I, like, I like La Bumba and Tutti Frutti. Well, that's a brilliant song. Well, that's brilliant lyrics. I think they're brilliant lyrics. But anyway, 
So let's get off the music for a minute at least. When you did January songs, which you did a, a year ago last January, which you obviously you know, but the audience don't. Um, you did a song every day for a month, which I thought was a. I, I followed it. I followed it along. I was really impressed by sure. it. Sure. I enjoyed it very much. But one of those songs was about being a volunteer, which is one of my favourite songs I think from that that album, um, which is based on you being a volunteer. So you. Yeah. Do you wanna, uh, what volunteer. I do less and less actually. In fact, today would have been the day I usually go, but I didn't. But I volunteer out in Essex on the Epinonga Railway, which some people might remember as being the Central Line. The Central Line used to not stop, everything used to go out to Onga. And that section of track now has been brought by a private individual, and, and people volunteer to try and make it a heritage line that would run old steam and diesel. But I have also volunteered, as I said earlier, for the PDSA, People's Dispensary for Sick Animals. Yeah, we took my dog there. And Bassie Dog's Home. It's weird to talk about volunteering because it's kind of been slightly tarred with this sort of big society brush. Yeah, yeah. And I don't necessarily want to be part of that. I don't really want to sort of say it as a sort of duty because most people work hard enough. Yeah. They haven't got any extra to give. But the idea, the concept of volunteering, the idea of I give something and expect nothing back in return is really nice. It's a really nice idea. You know, I like, I like, I like the word volunteer and I like what it means. And it's restoring a railway track and railways are quite important in your life, aren't they, would you say? Um, Trains at least. Important. I mean, it's a hobby rather than a, a belief or a passion. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a belief, but what, um, what, what is it that attracts? Because like, I don't get it. Like, I love your songs. I, I, I think we get on pretty well so far, but but I, I, I really don't understand the appeal of trains. Well, in this particular case, it's heritage. So the idea of anybody restoring things and preserving things is always attractive to me whether it be a book or a piece of paper or a record, the idea that people are repairing old things that are broken rather than destroying them and building new things seems like, in a, in a fundamental way, it's ecological. You know, that's what we should do, right? We shouldn't we destroy things, we should yeah. repair them. And we live in a society that isn't that keen on repairing. Now it's kind of a little more keen on making the new thing. That interests me. My particular interest in trains is old diesels. And I'm, I have a romanticism about the fact that they, they worked for so long that trains that were built in the late 50s worked up until the early 2000s. Some of them are still working and some of them are still on main lines. That's interesting to me, that like, things used to be built to last, and so that. But as to why trains particularly, and why trains have such an appeal on men of my age, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that is. It's kind of quite bizarre, and I have thought about that before. And I can't, yeah, I can't really explain that. There is just something comforting about them. There's I mean, something safe and secure about being on the train. I know they have accidents. There's something, I don't know. I mean, Trains more than anything else, I suppose, link me to another time, I suppose. I see them and I think about the 70s, I think about my childhood, and we're all sort of capable of rose tinting when we were growing up. This is sort of unlikely beauty. I enjoy finding something beautiful that a lot of people don't. These big, brutish, metal, smelly, dirty things mm. that make this noise. But I like the noise. There's, there's always something like that when you find beauty in a place where other people don't see it. Did you, always nice. I mean, did you experience? Did you did you have a train set when you were a kid? Or no, it's it's, it's, it's quite, the actual physical no, it's, one, no, it's all quite, the real one. It's all no, it's all quite recent. I did have a train set when I was young, but I don't remember a particular fascination with trains. I just kind of had a train set in a way that everyone might have a train set. And for some reason, recently, this interest in old trains has come about. I'm not entirely sure why. Yeah, fair enough. 
you've certainly given me a little bit of an idea about what what appeals to you about those trains. My understanding of your life kind of comes from your recent concept albums about your life. Sure. So, Framtown. There was uh, a Hefner album called We Love the City, which I guess was about London. Yeah. And then, I guess, on an album called Local Information via band, I just did one album with called The French, and then a couple of solo albums. I wrote mostly about suburbs and where I came from, and I come from Brentwood, a small town in Essex, just outside the M25. And is that, would that be Bramtown? Is that? No, not quite. So then I sort of decided to perhaps put that to rest by just really doing an album about it. And when Pramtown started, it was about Brentwood, but actually ended up being about a town just uh, a few miles away called Harlow. That's right. Which I used to visit to go and see the gigs. So it's, it's kind of about my hometown, but actually I sh- shifted the narrative because I wanted to write about new towns, bad ideas gone wrong, modernism, failed architectural ideas. So I did this album Pramtown, which is a concept album about Harlow, and it's a narrative set in a new town. Essex Arms isn't really that city, it's actually then I decided to write purely about rural Essex That's right. and rural England. I thought it was coming in, but I thought in my head Harlow was further out than Essex Arms, no, but really, you're no, saying I, it's the I, other I, way around, but that's fine. I, I knew I, they were both suburbs. I a planned trilogy of albums about Essex, and so Town is about, you know, just sort of the belt around the M25, and still just moving over the suburbs. <laughs> Essex Arms is about the gaps between the towns, I guess. Right. The idea that the countryside isn't necessarily idyllic, mm-hmm. that lawlessness and illicit things Dogging, yeah. happen in, in the countryside. <laughs> and then the next album, which is called The Violence, is about what really happens in the back of beyond, what happens in the hidden pockets and, and, and the north of Essex. And so would, would, would you, you grew up in the suburbs... Yeah, I grew, I grew up in a satellite town, I guess you'd call it. You were interested in your early career in London, as you say, and you live in London now. What's the relationship for you between the suburbs and the, and the city? I mean, what... I fucking hate the suburbs. They're awful. They're terrible. I think it's a really irresponsible thing to bring up children in the suburbs. <laughs> and I kind of resent my parents for it. I think the only thing it gave me was something to hate and something to rail against and something to escape from. So as soon as I was old enough, I was getting on the trains, yeah. funnily enough, into London to see bands and things I cared about because anything that me- meant anything seemed to be in London. And tossers who liked fighting and people that wanted to be bank managers lived in Essex and lived in, in <laughs> Brentwood. I've got a lot of time for the countryside. I've got a lot of time for rural England. And I can imagine myself living in a row of houses with one pub and a I shop. Lived, I lived in a, when I was between three and eight, I lived in North Wales in a tiny village which had one pub. And that was, that was the, the best time yeah, to grow up. beautiful, like I want to live there now. Yeah. And I can imagine that being the case. For a child, it was great. For my brother, it was horrible because mm. he was older, he was a teenager. He wanted to escape it, uh, similar yeah. to you. I think the countryside is awesome. I think the city is awesome. I think the in-between yeah. is hell. Ah, that's interesting. And so you grew up in the in-between? Yeah. And do you... And I would never go back. I mean, I would never live in a medium-sized town. I, w- I will either stay in London or another big city until I die, or I will live in a cottage that doesn't have broadband. <laughs> cool. <laughs> do you think that it shaped your shaped who you are then living in the in-between I mean how is it was it would you could describe your background as working class or middle class or like that's another thing that always comes up on the show is class um, no my background's working class I'm the only member of my family of my generation so if you went across my generation of cousins and so I'm thinking of about 19 or 20 cousins I'm the only one that went to university got a degree and then looking at the generation below me none of them have been to university so I yeah I'm working class and I fell through the cracks somehow what do you think of the working class um I think 
that they're, they're great, they're fantastic, but I am wary of the trope of the ragged trouser philanthropist. And I think the working class are capable of anything. And I think that fantastic art and fantastic ideas consistently come out of the working class. Yeah. But I'm not prepared to sit on their side all the time because sometimes they're racist, sexist arseholes and yeah. they're fucking stupid. And yesterday I saw Boris, because we're doing this interview on the day of the mayoral election. That's right. And yesterday I saw in the news Boris on an estate and I saw loads of people clambering for his autograph who clearly should know better. Sometimes they just don't help themselves, do they? No, he's funny on panel shows though. That's what they, that's what they like. He's a funny guy. That's why they like him. I think it's his hair. You think so? I think it could be something as stupid as his hair. <laughs> I really do. I think if he had different colour hair and it wasn't white and floppy, they might not vote for him. I think that people... I don't know. I'm a socialist. And I believe in democracy and everything that comes with that. Every cliched idea that comes with that, that's what you could guess my opinion on almost anything. But sometimes, fucking hell, people let you down, right? They just <laughs> fucking vote badly. Yeah, I mean that—that that is the—that's the problem with socialism democracy. and democracy. Is you have to love love the people, and the people, yeah, the people are great, but yeah, often misguided. I agree. It's hard interviewing your your heroes. Um, <laughs> I've read it all already. Mostly, yeah. I, I noticed you reading it upside down my notes. I mean. The, the main thing I was concerned about when I was coming here was, you know, the, the first primary thing was, will you think I'm a dick? And the second thing was, will I think you're a dick? You know, when you meet someone that, 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 that you really like, you don't want to, you don't want to be let um, down, you don't, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay with, with you I'm, so far. I'm reasonably uh, <laughs> uh, scored at interviews. Yeah. And I've, um, learned that talking is, is quite good that that tends to work yeah so, so I'm not, not too nervous no well you wouldn't be I was I mean I'm just acknowledging that, that I mean and then also I, I I mean you know part of the conceit I guess or the, the the style of my show is that it tries to be conversational and, and and all of that sort of side of things but you've been on I've heard you on podcasts that are conversational before and this is no new thing for you so um, well this thing here is the enemy not not the whole machine but the thing that's my side the little red light I'm, I'm quite interested in that actually that's something I, I think a lot about about what the red light does to people both in this situation when you're talking and interviewing but also in music uh, just the, the, the knowledge that you are being recorded immediately changes what yeah. you're doing yeah. uh, and you're aware of it because when you first came up we started talking and said well don't say that too much but whatever we were talking about yeah, yeah. think about being early because I need to start recording and, and, and the idea that you would um, rehearse it that's how I think that's how I or look. use up good conversation yeah use up these and that's analogous to making music the musicians can be talk, talking like talking with their instruments whilst the engineers put the microphones up and actually playing the best music before yeah, start I've had life. this experience <laughs> and then you can't recapture it afterwards or you try and you maybe do so I would say actually music what I've, I've gradually discovered is if you had like a graph of fidelity or not fidelity even fidelity is part of it but perceived what we perceive as the good things about music the surface things about music, i.e. that it should be well recorded and should be in tune and should be the correct tempo. Yeah. If you had a graph of those things and then what for a better, really I would like to find a better word, but we'll call performance or soul or feeling or these nefarious intangible qualities that also make music good. Those graphs run diametrically opposite to each other. That the more you pursue correctness the more time you spend getting the mic close to me the more time you question the tempo of the song the more red lights essentially there are the more the other disappears and so you have to accept that 
as a seesaw yeah. that will never have both sides up. And once you accept that, then it becomes interesting. Because yeah. then you can say, okay, well maybe the best recording of this band is with a dictaphone in a field and a hat. Totally. So, bringing that analogy to here, and you probably don't want to use this, but I would suggest, if you want to get better conversation, yeah. don't wear the headphones and don't put it on a tripod. Ah, well, that's an interesting thing. I think that most people, like a lot of people who do this sort of thing, like the, my, my big hero in podcasting, Mark Marin, who does a, a podcast in America, both his guests holding microphones, right? right? And that, that he gets much better sound quality than I do, but, uh, and, and he, uh, he, I don't want to knock his show, he gets brilliant yeah. conversations, but he gets them out of people who are used to using a microphone. And I want to record people who aren't using a microphone. I've so seen some people do things like. So this works some, well. For some me, people do things. Well. Some some people are do things. I don't do what you do, and you are better at what you do than I do. Uh, I've seen <laughs> some people do things like they'll, they'll say they'll come in and they'll just walk up and just go. Um, hey Dan, so uh, what do you want to drink? And I go to the bar, but the. Yeah, the he, phone, he threw his phone down. The phone or whatever is on, or the, 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 the hard disk recorder come on, they come back and say, so how have you been? And there's actually never a formal start to it. No, and, 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 and sometimes you might even say, do you want to start? It's like, oh, it is. No, and that's a choice. But that's a choice. Like, it, like in music, that's a choice. I'm looking to create, I guess, a safe space to a certain extent. I'm not interviewing famous people normally. Yeah. I'm interviewing real people who have, like, who won't consider that this is going out on the internet. They won't consider... You know, I have to be responsible also, to my, my close friends and family. Like, imagine the responsibility of that. So I have to be careful um, with what I'm doing. And so I had to set up this kind of process from the start to... Uh, so to, you to think that the, the putting the, the, the phone down is unfair to them in some way because you're, you're recording them surreptitiously? Yeah, I, t I tell people that I've started recording. Ah. I always no, tell so them. You can tell them in retrospect. Yeah, that's so what my friend says, so what, but so, I don't so, believe so, so what you, so what you, No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> David, you know David Simon? The, yeah, the, the wire. The, the wire yeah. guy. And he, he says this about journalism. He says, I always get uh, subject approval of interviews. And this is a really interesting idea because no one does this anymore. Yeah. You do the word, then you create the words into something you do. But what you, do, what you would do is if you did what I was saying, right? Yeah. So if you turn up and just throw it, with your friend, mm -hmm. so you 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 put the phone down. You say, "Go and get a drink." You come back. You start talking, and then they start talking about the affair they're having or something. They talk about something yeah. insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like let's say, Dave. Oh, you know that thing the other day with the yeah. day with the girl, and, and you're like, "Oh shit, it's recorded." Whatever. You're just honest about it, and at the end of it, you go, "Oh, by the way, that recorded that." Well, I'll, I so have, I'll, I'll send it to you. You tell me what you don't well, want. Well, I've, I've cut out stuff like that, but I haven't given anybody well, any well, approval. Well, I'm really interested in this idea. I don't want it. No, no, no. Got time. But, <laughs> but, Most but, people but, don't. But the, idea, the idea of like complete approval, I think, is really interesting. And David Simon reckons that it's never not led to a better interview. So even if he's kind of like someone said like absolute gold dust, right? They've said this, that. They've opened up in such a way. It's like shit. They're never gonna let this be broadcast, right? He's found that, like, by going back to them with, say, with his case, he's a print. He he used to be. Now he's a TV writer. But he used to be a print journalist. Yeah, I know. If he went back with, say, the article and said, "Well, what do you think of what I've written?" Nine times out of ten, what would actually happen is they'd clarify a point by expanding more. They'd say, "Well, actually, you've put this." But actually, I would like to expand that. Yeah. What really happened was this. And so actually, he gets more by doing No, I don't deny that. I think there are a series of choices, though. And, and I think that when, when... Isn't that interesting? Yeah. No, that in terms is really of like the current climate of journalism, you know, that everything now is like about um, bugging and spying. But the idea that you actually asked anyone anything, you'd get more. No, I mean, well, Carl James, who's a guy who does this sort of thing as well, who I've interviewed. My um, wife. Well, wow. Um, well... He, he sort of says that um, when he sets, does a setup, he doesn't use headphones. Weird. If you go to the I, bar... I'll give you the money. If for, you go to the bar, you will guess what we're drinking. I'll give you the money. No, 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 this I, is, no, this I, is... I said I'd give you two. Yeah, no, so. it's all right. You don't have to. She, she has money. <laughs> That's true. She's a teacher. But, but I, if you go to the bar, you will guess what we're drinking by the names on the taps. That's a challenge for you. <laughs> I'm missing Sally, so I've not... 
got a hunch, though Dave will tell me if I'm wrong, that we're nearly finished. We are nearly finished. So, so, so bring Sally over uh, when she comes and we can all drink together. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we're finishing But we soon. are drinking the, the beer which you will guess I'm drinking. I'm not saying there's one way is right. No, no, no. I, I mean, I think what you're saying is, is definitely interesting. Carl James from the Dialogue Project, who I've spoken to, who does this sort of thing, he doesn't use headphones. He, he says, you know... He, there is also an opposite thing that's true. And I'm sure you discovered this as well. Yeah. Because I did a little... It got rejected, actually, but I was asked to do a spot for Radio 4, and I had to interview me about trains, probably, right. heritage railways. And I interviewed people, and I found that actually, by doing it your way, more yeah. formally, like putting a little tripod and saying, right, here's the thing, yeah. the opposite is also that by nature of having a red light and by people knowing that what they're doing has a degree of permanence, yeah. or that people will hear it, they kind of compose their thoughts and actually yeah. say more than they ever want. I definitely so find I think there's a truth in both. Well, absolutely. Well, what Carl, what Carl James says about it is that he says he's never had a conversation where anyone's wanted to take anything out retrospectively, pretty much, because they're comfortable in the conversation and so they're, they're happy with it, with the way they've said it. And I, so I recognise that. What I would say about my, my show is where I find the gems come is when, is, 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 is the moment when people, like having the performance, having the stage is great. Like you say, they perform up to it. But then the gem comes when they forget, like 45 minutes in, because it's long form. The moment when they forget that the microphone is there and they completely let up after they've done performance. And the change between those moments is have quite fascinating. Have you heard about In the Dark? Yes, I have. Yeah. Have you been? Um, I haven't been. My friend keeps saying I should okay. go. Have you been? It's a friend of mine who runs it. Oh, right. In fact, the thing that I did rejected is kind of for In the Dark. Oh, right. And In the Dark is the idea of uh, Nina. Uh, a friend of mine, Helen's. Uh, Nina actually is Dave Tatsell's partner, who I talked about earlier okay. from the Wave Pitch. It all comes together. So his partner is Nina, and she thought of In the Dark. Um, yeah, you'd love it. Now that sounds great. I mean, the, the, the big topic I haven't managed. You submit something. No, I, I want to go. Me, you know, you should submit uh, much more. A real person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not that you're not a real person, no, but you no, know, yes, absolutely. That, that's much more in line with what they do, but no, true. go first. I want, that's what me and my, my yeah. friend are going to go, and then I, I definitely will consider that. No, it's great. The big thing I haven't managed to talk to you about is copyright. That's probably for the best. What I thought would be an interesting conversation would be uh, someone who's never made money from their music, who believes that copyright is the, the enemy, and someone who has I made some music. Because everything is a, a remix, because music and ideas can only exist if they're allowed to be kind of to flow and to change and to be revolved. And if you have copyright, then you decide who gets to who gets to make the music. Like it's, it, it means it's money. It's about money. You can't you can't as as someone without money sample someone else's music. You know, refer okay. to their music. So, but then I want to make money. It is a complicated thing. I, I do want so, to make so, money from my music. So. so, so is there any kind of resolution of that? So if, if 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 Dave Pickering was the king of the world, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how would musicians make money? I'd like to live in a world where music musicians didn't have to make money. I guess that's the only the only thing I can say. Within the world we have now, I'll make money however I can. I think you should do the same. I'm not going to knock anybody, but I'm certainly not going to say that someone shouldn't rip off your music. I haven't ripped off your music because I'm, I'm very bad at being able to... Like, I can't even work the programme. Since I got Spotify, I haven't needed to, to, to even consider that. But I've never been good at ripping off music. And I don't do it, obviously, because it's illegal. And never have done because it's illegal. Well, well, for a start, there's several different copyrights we've already talked about. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're talking about sort of Spotify and those kind of rights, you're talking about They're given mechanical tiny get bits of money so as well. So you're talking about, um, you're talking about copyright and a sound which is actually something very tangible and provable. It's easy to prove if someone has relatively easy to prove if somebody has compromised the copyright. The, the exact recording. Yeah, I copied it and the, there's the evidence, there's the copy. I mean, in old days it would be a bootleg CD. 
intellectual copyright, so the chords and the words trouble you, whether someone did something that resembled them had reached that copyright is understandably more nefarious to prove. And indeed, I guess the whole area of copyright is always like a blob of jelly that you can't quite hold into a shape. It doesn't seem to me that copyright is giving artists money at the moment. Like, you don't have artists, apart from the, the top artists, nobody is making as much Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like... Yeah, it's not like copyright okay, is no, giving no, you more no, money no, than no, it should. That's true. That's true. Because um, that's what it should be for. It should be true. to pay and the artist. The way that PRS and the MCPS Alliance works. Did you guess what it was? <laughs> <laughs> what is that vehicle? There's there's all sorts of problems with how about how the PRS MCPS Alliance works. And you're absolutely right that actually there is, I, I believe I'm correct in saying there's a way that a lot of the missing money goes to the top 100 performers because they assume it goes to them. Yeah. So there's a way of sort of rounding up within the way. Perhaps the mechanics and the practicalities of copyright, and, and that is an argument that's valid, but, but it's not necessarily an argument against the principle. I mean, the problem for me, ultimately it comes down to, you know you and McCall? Yes. His, his song Manchester Rambler, where he says, no, no man has the right to own mountains as much as the deep ocean bed, right? Now, I think that about words and music. I think, how can you actually put a claim on a word, on a sound, or these things? Helen would be better. <laughs> she should be better on this. She'll, 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 she'll know much more about this now. She'll put herself across much better now. Well, I'm sure she will. I mean, and it was, you know, I do want. She has run away, but we'll stop recording now, and then she'll she'll come back. Um, I mean, I'm not really challenging you. I'm not meaning to make a hostile. No, but it's not my style of my show. (laughs) I think the mechanics of copyright are flawed, and I think there are some things in copyright which does favour the haves as well as the haves. Yeah. I think copyright is sometimes a creative impediment. I think the traditional folk song and people like you and McCall exists outside of copyright and it's a beautiful thing. The idea of a spoken traditional Learning each other's songs and developing them. That's that's good, and that does now run the country to copyright. They 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 sit uncomfortably beside each other. Yeah. But no, ultimately I disagree. No, fair enough. I think there is a way. I think there is a way to. um, There is a provable way to ascertain the originality of an idea. It's flawed and it's not without problems, but there is a way to do it. And ideas are worth something clearly. I don't mean uh, emotionally, commercially. Ideas, um, a chord structure or a set of words can occasionally be worth lots of money. Mm-hmm. And we have a flawed infrastructure which protects that individual who does it. And I agree broadly with the principle of copyright. Fair enough. I mean, I, I read that in interviews and I, I thought that would be an interesting thing to do. I mean, I'm certainly I'm not going to argue anymore with you. Cause, well, no, but I, I like... Part of my, I mean, I've, I've, done, I've had conversations with Liberal Democrat uh, potential MPs on this show and I give them their space because that's the, that's the principle of the show. It's not something I necessarily feel completely comfortable with not challenging people, but I do try not to challenge people on this show. It's kind of part of the principle of the show. It's like for me to actually listen to people instead of just impose my views on them endlessly. No, no, I've, I've been lucky enough I haven't done that. The last sort of question I ask people is, do you have anything that you want to plug? Which is a a very vital question for lots of the people I meet, but irrelevant for others as well. Fair enough. I figured you'd say that.
I'd like to plug your work, but that's, and so please do buy. Ironically, I've just been saying I don't believe in copyright, but buy as much of Darren Haven's work as you can because uh, it's great. And the last thing I ask people to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience of uh, Dave Goodfriends. Uh, getting acquainted. Getting better acquainted. Getting better acquainted. And thank you for having me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Let me go and find my wife and get Brilliant. That's a pint for me. Fantastic. Thank you, that's alright. Bye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.